The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I want to give the call-in number if you're listening and you would like to uh, call in and speak directly to our guest this afternoon. That number is 888-329-3306. And, of course, you can always find out what we're doing uh, at Women to Watch on uh, womentowatch.net, our website. So this afternoon, I'm, I'm thrilled to have two wonderful women with me today. One, of course, is my co-host who joins me weekly, Dr. Beth Dupree. I'm going to go to our guest, and I'm being joined this afternoon by Judith Glazier. Uh, Judith is founder and CEO of Benchmark Communications. She is an author of seven books. She is an organizational anthropologist and also co-founder and chairman of the Creating We Institute. And I'm so thrilled to have her today. She's a busy lady, so I'm very appreciative of her time. Judith, welcome to the show. Susan, I'm thrilled to be on the show today. Very, very excited. Looking forward to it. Terrific. And we'll get Beth, I'm sure. Um, I can't imagine we're having technical difficulties already. The Pope's not here yet, but there's been so much talk <laughs> of surrounding his visit and, and how it's going to affect our city. Mm. For sure. Yeah. Um, let me just check. Beth, are you there? No, still not. Okay. I'm going to wait uh, to get a signal from my engineer. Um, Judith, as I said, I'm so happy to have you. I have to tell you that the work that you do is so incredibly fascinating to me um, personally. So when I was doing my research and, and reading about your work, I, I had a million questions. I thought one hour is never going to be enough. Um, but we'll try to get we'll try to get to the heart of it. Um, the first thing I want to do, as I always do on my show, is talk about you and and uh, the story behind the title, uh, which is what I say for our tagline, and let the listeners get a sense of you. Um, so t- talk a little bit about your background, your growing up years, and your hometown. So I grew up in Philadelphia in a family. I had two siblings, and uh, I had a very unusual family uh, upbringing for a number of reasons. Um, one is that um, around the age of 11, my father was asked to be an ambassador to the United States to bring dentistry around the world. And I had the good fortune of being taken to a couple of countries um, where he was giving his talks and lecturing and setting up the dental school. So that's amazing in and of itself because I got to see a picture of the world from a global perspective. But let me back you into that and okay. why that why that time was important. Um, I grew up my dad was a very unusual guy and I didn't understand it until I started to explore his conversational style what was really going on for him Um, we didn't do a lot of talking in our family my dad and and the way he interacted with us was very much a teller and very stern and very firm about his point of view very addicted to being right 
And I didn't understand that because, you know, you just don't live in a lot of families uh, to find out how different dads are. Although I did run away a lot because I knew that there was something that was missing for me growing up. Hmm. And what I learned at at the age of 11, I discovered some um, a book, a a book of pictures, snapshots and all sorts of things. And there were some things from the newspaper and it was hidden away. So my family, a lot of secrets were always hidden away. And we didn't know a lot about my parents' history and neither of them. And what I found in the book was a picture of my dad in a tutu. I, which is kind of odd anyway. Right. <laughs> I, also, <laughs> I also saw him um, as the president of the debating team, and he was the uh, valedictorian of his class. And these were some pictures that he had saved in a special strap, scrapbook, which he had hidden away. And when I asked him about it, um, I, I found out, it, it slipped out, he didn't mean to share it, I'm sure, but it slipped out that he had been a stutterer as a child growing up all the way from the time he was very, very young until the time that something important happened in his life that influenced him and very much influenced me. He was a born a twin. My grandmother had told him that uh, that she only wanted boys, excuse me, girls, not boys. And when he had a twin sister, my grandmother favored the little girl, but she had water on the brain. And so my father's job was to push her carriage around. And that's mm-hmm. when his stuttering started. He, mm-hmm. had a, a, he was what I call emotionally orphaned. Yeah. And that became like a, a landmark thinking thought for me of something that I was trying to understand and unravel about my family because it didn't feel like we had a very close family. When I would go to friends' houses, I'd watch interactions that were really beautiful between conversations between people. And in my family, we didn't have that. We would either be in silence a lot or we'd be told what to do. And as I learned, when my father went to high school, he was stuttering all the way through school. And in high school, he had a teacher that asked him to be the lead in a play. And when he was taking the lead in a play, she worked with him to step into a new identity. And all these words are important in what became conversational intelligence. When he stepped into a new identity, a new part of his brain formed, and he stopped stuttering. And in that role, right, so in that role, he was always in a telling mode. So my dad was locked into that behavior. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, and one of the things that's remarkable to me is that, you know, that must have created a lot of anxiety for you as a child. But yet at the age of 11, you started to pick up medical books um, right. and, and you went to college early at 16. So you, you, you were, you know, you had the academic ability, you had the smarts. Um, but it's just so fascinating to me that you wanted to learn more in order to communicate better with your parents. I did. I really, really did. And I would go away and I'd go to my aunt. I was a Girl Scout and I was Curve Bar and she was the Girl Scout leader. And I'd go to her house and I loved the bantering and, and the conversations. My All my cousins were either scientists or engineers or mathematicians and so smart and everybody had opinions. But it was the way that they engaged with each other to enable each person to feel like they had an important place in the family. And they were all smart. And I loved that. And I'd feel different. And I'd come home and I'd want to make it like that happened at my house. Mm. And, you know, and then when I would try to engage with people, with my mother, with my father, I didn't know how to make that dynamic happen. And so I turned to medical books. And my father used to say to me, why are you reading books about crazy people? Because the books had a lot of <laughs> things about, you know, psychology and brain science and everything in this medical book. And, you know, he didn't know. I didn't know. I just knew that there was a an aspiration that I had that started very young that I was going to find what it meant to have great conversations 
And so I started to do things in my life very early, like I went to an orphanage. Something pulled me into an orphanage because I, I said my father was like an emotionally orphan. And it was like the weirdest thing. I was driving to school one day at Temple University. I was 16. I just got my license. And something pulled me, literally like I had a hook. And I turned in to see what this big house was. And it turned out to be an orphanage. And I went in and I said, are you looking by any chance for people to work here? And the woman said, oh, I thought you were responding to our ad. And oh, it was just wow. A, it was like so amazing. And they ended up giving me a job to come every day from 3 until 8 to be with the girls. And there were 30 girls who were all orphans. And this is, again, it's all about conversation. So I interact with them in the way I wanted to be interacted with growing up and loved them and shared with them and cared about them and asked them lots of questions. And I didn't even really help them study as much as I helped them feel good about themselves. Mm. And the chemistry of that obviously had an impact because three months later, the headmaster called me in and she said, I really need to talk to you. And you know what that sounds like when you're a kid? Like, what did you do wrong? Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And she said, the first thing she said was, what did you do to the girls? And I thought, oh, my God, my st- I, I still remember the feeling in my stomach. And I said, what are you talking about? I, w- I haven't been doing anything. And she said, well, I just want to understand why it is that when you came, the kids were getting D's in school and how it is that three months later they're getting A's and B's. And she said, I'm not saying just a couple. She said, I'm, all, all the girls are having extraordinary good changes in school in their grades. And I want to understand, how are you doing that? Mm. So well, this, is, this is where my research started. Yeah, at 16, at 16. And what fate that you pulled into that driveway, you know? Something pulled yeah. you in there. That's incredible. And yeah. Judith, would you say, you know, I'm listening to your story and, and how young people were affected in such a short period of time. Would you say that that's from your validating who they are and what their own aspirations and dreams were? I, I want to put a big emphasis on that because what I'm learning is that many times without realizing it, we as parents or as teachers or as people at work, we work with other people that we're bringing in to report to us and to be part of our teams. We often um, manage their behaviors by, by rewards and punishments. And that means that if they do something bad, we let them know and we punish them in subtle or not so subtle ways. And if they're doing something great, if they're lucky, they get us to say, you know, that was really great or keep it up or do more of this or whatever. But, but usually we go into reward and punishment as the behavior that adults interact with in order to help people grow that report to them as well as family members. And I started to look at something different. I said aspirations are our dreams about the future. And I wonder where aspirations live in the brain. I mean, I can't believe that I was thinking this at that age, truthfully. Mm-hmm. I said, what if it lives in a different place than, than where we learn knowledge? And what, if it does, let me play with this a little bit because how, hard, you know, how could it be harmful? And I said, what if I help the girls think about what they aspire to be when they grow up? Or what, if it, what would they like to see happen this year that's so special? In other words, shaping my conversations with them around their dreams and their aspirations. And what I've learned in my neuroscience research is that the aspirations live in the prefrontal cortex and heart. The prefrontal cortex is the executive brain. It's right behind the forehead, and it's the most uh, advanced part of the brain which has the most extraordinary capacities to shape pictures of the future. 
to think about what we want to become, to develop foresight, to have empathy with people, to connect with dreams and, and to build dreams and paint them in your brain. That part of the brain, when it's activated, helps us shape these, these a hologram of what we want and then gives us the pathway to step into it. Mm. So this is a real thing that when you use the word aspirations, does it make a difference? Is it part of the kind of conversations that we want to have with, with our children growing up and cultivate with the, the kids in school? Yes, absolutely. It, it becomes an important part of what activates growth and not just minimal growth, like meeting the expectations. The expectations minimize what we want to do, but aspirations activate. Well, the and greatest thing that we can do, yeah. Yeah, and and I think um, such a big part of your work and what you're educating people on is it, it matters as well in the corporate workplace, you know, amongst colleagues and their leaders. It's not, you know, it's not simply for children, but I, my guess is if we start at a young age with them knowing the importance and value of their own aspirations, then that will lead to, you know, greater success down the road and perhaps it, quicker. Yeah. It, it, you're, you're so right. You're absolutely right. When we start to cultivate the distinctions, the words are different, and sometimes we couple them together. So expectations and aspirations, people don't make a distinction, but the distinction is fundamentally one of the most important that you can make when you talk to people. Um, I worked with Pfizer, a very, very large pharmaceutical company, and was there at the time when they decided, and it was a great idea, they decided to change their performance reviews that had expectations um, like, what do you expect your direct report to do? It had the expectations in, it's how they marked it, and they shifted it over to aspirations. And they watched how much more at ease people were at work. Therefore, they had much more courage to speak up because they didn't expect that if they did something wrong that they would get punished for it. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole different mindset. It's a whole different chemistry. It's a whole different cocktail that's happening in the brain mm-hmm. as we're interacting well, and it's so positive. You know, your 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 message and, and what you're trying to teach people and executives and companies is the positivity in all of this, to, to be aware of it and thinking about it in your day-to-day work um, brings about such a great outcome. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I'm, uh, I'm actually on now. Oh, good. Okay, Beth, I had I'm glad to call in. The microphone doesn't work. Judith, it's Beth Dupree. It's so nice to meet you. And I'm sitting here listening to you, and what you're saying is, is what some of the great yogis in the world say is, you know, if you don't, if you can't hold that positive intention, if you can't hold that idea, you're not going to create the energy for that possibility to happen in your life. And um, the the... It's beautiful the way that you frame it because it's a it's a very um, Western brained um, connection of it. You're, you're, the Western brain is actually able to understand it very clearly. I'm so excited you said that, Beth. I really am. And you said a word activated, and here's what I've learned. And I'm going to tell you if you want another personal story, I'll share it. But let me give you the science first that we now know, a lot of us know about entropy. Entropy is using up energy. It's going to the lowest common denominator for energy. But there's another word that I discovered when I was 19 years old that fascinated me, and it's called enthalpy. And enthalpy is energy that happens when two people are interacting and activating each other. And what we're learning about this part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex and heart, is that when human beings interact with each other in a way that isn't without judgment, 
but enables them to bring their dreams and aspirations into the conversation and live in them together, that we actually activate the capacity for achieving those goals. That's that- what I do with my patients every single day. That's that's and when ah. people ask why are you successful? What is it about your practice that makes your breast cancer, your breast practice different? And so I don't focus on the cancer. I focus on the individual and the, the the positive things that will come out of their life through this process. Yes, we treat the cancer. We we treat it with everything that we need to treat it with. But we begin that that healing process, which is which can only happen when you share that energy with another human being. Wow! Wow! That's that's fascinating. So does it, can you see that it might have an impact even on how people heal after discovering cancer or, you know? Where oh, it, absolutely. It, 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 changes, um, it changes how they do postoperatively from a pain management perspective. It changes how they do um, postoperatively. The, the hardest thing with breast cancer is, is alleviating fear. Um, and if if someone stays in the fear zone, they hold on to that energy. Their energy body holds on to fear. So when you can get out of the fear zone, and, and this works, this is the same as in business. I mean, if somebody's in a job and they're fearful, just like you just said, if they're working for expectation, not aspiration, they're working out of a place of fear. What if I don't produce? What if I don't get better? What if my cancer comes back? It's all those mm-hmm. same aspects. So when you take away that fear and you go to the um, that place of um, peace and empowerment and finding that that sense of kind of letting go of the fear and moving into I'm healing, I'm, you know, I'm creating new bonds in my cells every day, I'm, my, you know, my tissue is strong, seeing things from a very different perspective, you're actually turning on those aspects of your body's healing capabilities instead of staying into that, into that fear vibration. So it, it wow. works both in the business world and also in the medical world. So let me ask you a wild question then. Is it possible that what you're doing with your patients actually can impact the uh, immune system. In other words, building a capacity for higher levels of immunity against the cancer that might still be resident or that, that you know might help clean out something that's there so, that could become activated. So here's here's the here's the thought process. We are really good in Western medicine. We are really good at removing parts that cease to vibrate like cancerous tissue. We are good Mm -hmm. with chemotherapy um, and radiation targeting the the physical body, but the problem is we uh, as as a medical profession have not really focused on turning on our body's own innate healing abilities and that's what what we're talking about does is it, it, it basically can activate your T helper cells. We, we know this through yoga, through studies of patients who've gone through yoga um, and meditation, that you can actually shift and increase the number of T helper cells and change the immune balance. So, you know, just as a body can create, you know, our bodies create the cancers, our bodies can certainly have the capacity to, um, you know, increase the surveillance. And that's why when you, when you look at patients stage for stage, grade for grade with breast cancer, patients that have adopted, number one, you know, what I call nourishing the temple, eating a healthy diet, you know, having some form of physical activity, some form mm-hmm. of meditation, yoga, um, some aspect of a spiritual connection where they're actually raising their vibration when they are living with passion and purpose in their life because nobody wants to get up in the morning and go to a job that they're miserable at. Um, so what mm-hmm. you're doing is you're basically raising that vibration, and that ch- helps to change that entire um, that outlook. And we know that patients that do that 
do better stage for stage, grade for grade, from an overall survival and from a you know local regional recurrence. So it's it's where I take my Western medical hat and I say, okay, listen, I've learned how to do this. I know how to operate. I'm a good surgeon. I know when to give chemo. I know when to give radiation. But I got to a place where I said, women are getting recurrences that should not get have their cancers come back, and people are surviving in spite of their cancers. So that's when you have to look and say, what are these people doing differently um, than the general population? So, but it, it it all speaks to the same language. You're you're speaking this language in the the business world of of how to succeed, and it's if you can succeed in the business world by learning this emotional intelligence. Our bodies have this emotional intelligence because we hold on to those things in our energy bodies, in our emotional bodies. And so getting to that place can um, bring about a much more profound healing and actually curing and, and improving, you know, our, our immune surveillance. Wow. Wow. That's, that's extraordinary to hear. I mean, I, I've been believing this and practicing it in the small world that I live in and talking to leaders about how to create environments that, that are healthy, that enable people to um, lower the amount of fear, downregulate fear, I call it, and upregulate uh, a sense of partnership and connectivity. And it sounds like that for me, I, at first I thought this was kind of my own little jargon, my own little – people used to, in my family used to call it Judy's World because <laughs> nobody talked like this before, and it was like odd. <laughs> but you're telling me that science and your work and the things that you do now have – tons of research behind it and that in fact it does make a huge difference yes wow. and, the, and the thing that and the thing that's really uh, you know it's it's pretty amazing i i've i don't really need to go back to school to learn how to do any surgery any better occasionally there's new techniques that come out but every day i am a student of you know the world of energy medicine because energy we're all energy i mean matter can either be created or destroyed if you if you take a cell in your body and you break that cell down into components you know, it goes from, you know, the cell to mitochondria to DNA, and in the end, it's, it's protons and neutrons, it's energy. And if mm-hmm. we can, if we, if we can realize that our bodies have receptors, just like some breast cancers have cell receptors for estrogen. So just as there are receptors on the surface of cells for specific, um, stimulants or molecules, those cells also have receptors for energy. And that's why when, you know, when, when people want to know how different forms of, of energy therapies work, I mean, radiation is energy. That's how radiation mm-hmm. works. I mean, so it's, it's a, you know, we all have this capacity, but we've all kind of forgotten about it because we're now in this fast-paced, crazy Western world where people are just on this treadmill going from point A to point B and not really realizing that, you know, that the destination is the journey, that they're missing that chance to be in that moment. And that's what I think so many, so much of what you're doing and what I've read about you is you're bringing that into the workplace where you're creating an environment where people can actually communicate and not just talk at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Per- and perform and, tasks. If, if I can just interrupt real quickly, I want to make sure that the listeners um, understand that this is of very personal interest to you, Judith, that um, you yourself are um, uh, battling with cancer right now. Uh, you have a daughter that was diagnosed with breast cancer and also a sister. So this is very personal mm-hmm. for you. It, it, it actually is, and um, it's kind of amazing that the, the – 
the triple simultaneity of this is absolutely kind of a stunning shock in our family. But my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer um, the end of last year. Then my daughter was diagnosed. I was there with her when she got her diagnostic diagnosis. Um, and a couple months later, I got it. So I'm in the tail end of having a double mastectomy. My daughter is in the, um, at the other side now of having a double mastectomy. And my sister um, ended up with a lumpectomy, but um, she had to go in back in twice for the margins. So, um, you know, I'm learning a lot about... It's personal. And, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's very personal and very real. And my husband, by the way, has been, has been 20 years studying um, cancer research and trying to, trying to see what's going on inside and to find other alternative ways of working with cancer. Um, but it's, you know, I, I ask myself, and I'm being very revealing right now, you know, what is it that was going on in my, my world that caused cancer to come back? Because this is the second time I've had it. The first time I was diagnosed, September 11, 2001, exactly at the same time the World Trade Center was being attacked. I was in the doctor's office getting my diagnosis of breast cancer. And in both cases, I found the lump. How did that happen? You know, what was going on that my body knew and my hand knew to go there? You know, all of those things are still mysteries to me, and Beth, you probably would know more about this than I do. Um, but, you know, it's I'm, I'm on the other side now, and uh, the story, Susan, that you were talking about, and Beth, about um, how the mind, what you do with your mind when you're in going through something like cancer, for me this time, the biggest lesson I learned um, was that I really put my mind into a place of healing, not into a place of fright. And when I went in for my surgery, the doctor told me, she said, you need to plan for at least a minimum of three weeks and a maximum of, you know, six or so, seven, but take time off, relax, don't work. And I said to her as she was leaving, I said, I don't do things that way. It's not going to be that way for me. And she said, well, I've never had any woman who didn't have at least three weeks uh, to heal. And this was, I was operated on Wednesday. Thursday, I came home from the hospital. Friday and Saturday and Sunday, I rested. Monday, I was back into a meeting with 149 people facilitating. And I had my tubes taken out, uh, the drains taken out that afternoon. And the doctor said to me, you know, uh, they're empty, but I've never taken them out this quickly. And I said, but they're empty. Why would you leave them in? And she looked at her nurse and she said, all right, we're taking them out. And I went back to work the next day. And uh, there's something that I'm learning, even though I'm now living through it the second time, about that state of mind of health, how your mind influences whether you feel sick and stay sick or whether you can be healthy. And I wouldn't have predicted that it would have been only four or so days to go back, but I'm learning every day that how the mind works can influence so much of how the body works. And I need to be doing, that's what you're talking about, is those practices of, the mindfulness and relaxation. I, well, I will certainly help you. I will certainly help you on this journey because it's something that's been um, I'm very passionate about. I do it with my patients. I have a foundation that provides um, the education because people just don't walk into the office and we say, "Well, listen, you might benefit some from from some Reiki or some guided imagery or some meditation or some some yoga and some different types of healing." And they'll look at you with with three heads. And part of this, I I prepare my patients before surgery because when they come into the operating room in that in that place of peace um uh-huh. it is it's it's palpable everybody feels it the staff feels it and the patients you know i have i have some of my um 
meditation music, some of my mantras on my iPhone, and I'll play that or I'll play the sounds of a beach. I'll ask everybody where they want to go under anesthesia so that they go to a nice place when they're going off to anesthesia, you know, for their surgery. But all of that, you are so true. Your attitude going into that, knowing, you know, kind of setting that intention, you know, uh-huh. and I, I'm a doer too. I'm, I'm trying to learn to be more of a beer, but it sounds like you're a much of a doer as well. And for yep. us doers, it's very hard if someone says, just be. I, I had surgery in 2009, and they told me to take four to six weeks off, and I was doing surgery two weeks later. Um, <laughs> so on somebody else. That's fabulous. So it, <laughs> it, it's very You, you two are very much alike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, goodness. Well, no, it, it, it's... I'm sorry. It's yeah, a it's ahead, a remarkable Beth. story, Judith. It's just to me that you know what you as as Beth always says, it is a journey, and and you will be learn. You know, some days you will be feeling and doing things well, and other days, you know, you might be questioning it. But I guess my my question for Beth always is there there. I guess there has to be a balance between that purposeful, positive. I'm just going to keep going, but also listening to your body when it does need rest. Correct. There. And interesting, I'm, I'm now three weeks out, and uh, I'm finding now I'm tired, but I wasn't right away. Maybe I was just jazzed up about the idea of healing fast. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I'm, but I'm also now listening. When my body says it wants to slow down a little bit, I'm doing that because I don't want to be ridiculous about it. You know, good. I know that I have to good. Yeah, it's good. It's good for me. So, well, do, you have, do, you have a personal, do you have a personal meditative practice or anything that you do? Um, I don't, I mean, I, there's a place that I go, it's kind of like a feeling place where I just, I, when I was young, um, I had a lot of dreams and the dreams were about flying and I would find myself in a room and I'd be flying with my back up to the ceiling, trying to lift the ceiling. So what gives me peace and gets me excited is, is that feeling of flying out of a room and feeling the universe and the, the elements around me and being able to keep going and keep going and keep going. So that's what I think about when I'm in a, in that really good place. Sounds like well, a peaceful that's, place that's, to me. And that's one of, the, one of the best, one of the best things that you can do, um, as someone who's now gone through this and you're coming out on the other end of it. And I know for me being a beer, it's really difficult, but I have, and I, I a couple of years ago, I did a, two-week meditation retreat in India, trying to kind of change everything about the way I think. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it worked for a while, and then I went back to my old habits, and I'm, I'm now six weeks into my second try of this, except this time I'm succeeding because I don't have this need to hit my alarm and go back to bed again. I'm, I'm up at 5, and what I'm really finding is when I begin my morning in gratitude and in that very peaceful place, kind of setting those intentions, you know, you can manifest amazing things. You can create much more positive flow of energy around you. And so mm-hmm. if, uh, if you're, if you do one thing for yourself, give yourself 15 minutes first thing in the morning before you look at your Blackberry or iPhone, whatever that device is, before you drink your cup of coffee or whatever that is, take that 15 minutes and that's, and, you know, and, and for every woman listening, any man listening, anybody listening, um, if you can begin your day in gratitude in that space before you get bombarded by all those other things, it's kind of amazing how things begin to shift. And not that things have to be bad or that things have, you know, the shifting I'm talking about is like you start to feel so much more grounded and centered um, every single morning. So that's mm-hmm. a, a little, that's my little curbside consult. So if you were coming back to my office for your three-week post-op, I would kind of give you that, that, that message and say, listen, there's something you can learn from this and run with it and you'll really enjoy it. So 
And Sue, mm-hmm. I want you to do it too. I, I will try. Yeah. I will try. Um, it's actually a perfect segue for us to take our quick break. We have to take a quick break for our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to start talking about your work, Judith, and, and your books and your institute and all that good stuff. We'll be right back. Okay. Great. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, my name is Sue Rocco, and uh, we are talking with both Dr. Beth Dupree, my co-host, who joins us every week, and our guest this afternoon is Judith Glazer. And Judith is founder and CEO of Benchmark Communications. She's authored seven books. Um, she is an organizational anthropologist and co-founder and chairman of the Creating We Institute. And I, I know the listeners are wanting to know what exactly that means. Um, I just want to give a quick background of your um, education, Judith, as well. You graduated Temple University. Um, you have a fellowship and a master's in human behavior and development from Drexel, a master's degree from Harvard, and also from Fairfield University. Did I cover all of your education? Yeah, you did. Okay. And and I guess if I know you, you're probably studying something right now, perhaps getting another degree. I'm always studying. <laughs> yeah, that's that's terrific. Um, something that was clear to me in reading your bio and your background is, you know, your love of learning, and and also just in you know your curiosity about human behavior. And I wanted to. My first question is really whether you have discovered something that stands out for you that surprised you in your research about human behavior, something that you did not realize was the case. Um, I don't know if I realized it as clearly when I was younger when I started to really study this, but um, the need to connect is one of the most powerful needs in the world. That's something that, well, it may seem obvious. It wasn't obvious when I was young. Um, it explains so much now about how people end up um, uh, feeling rejected when there's too much loneliness and how loneliness and rejection can and turn people's, I would guess, and Beth can share more about this than I can, but turn off their immune systems, that that the need to connect is, is so powerful that it drives everything. And um, I even know stories about uh, people that have been married for 50, 60, 70 years, and when um, the spouse passes away, someone that they've been really close with, then they pass away too within six mm-hmm. months of the, that time. So I think it's the um, absolute incredible importance, which drives a lot of the work I do, on conversational intelligence because it is about what happens at the moment of connection at that at that moment you know is there something that that we need to learn more about was my big question that some conversations feel so good that you you just want to be with that person because you feel a chemical and now I can say we have a chemical shift and um, other conversations feel so awful that you can't wait to retreat or run away or not share I didn't I knew I suspected all of this as a young child because that's what I was trying to understand but now to find the neuroscience supports this a thousand percent 
is just a beautiful thing because it's teachable and people understand it and they get it. We all have feelings of feeling good and feeling bad with people. So well, the, one I of the things, you know, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that it is teachable. My my guess would have been that it's something you're either born with or you're not. That you have this innate ability to listen um, and mm-hmm. also and also to connect. So, uh, you know, the fact that you're able to teach this, how do you go about doing that? Um, it's really fascinating. I I had a um, I have so many case studies to talk about, but there's one. It's very current for me right now. I had a leader that um, the CEO wanted to fire, and he was bringing in a lot of money to the company. It was a, a, a financial company um, that, that kept creating businesses every 18 months, and this guy was really successful on that side. But when he was with people and he had a little bit too much to drink, he was really a horrible, horrible, horrible person and embarrassed the CEO. And um, I just uh, was asked to be there when he was being fired, and I said to the CEO, I want to ask if I can have two months to help this guy uh, create a turnaround. And the CEO said, I think, you know, a sheep is a sheep, a cow is a cow. I don't think you're, he said, I don't think you're going to do anything with this guy, but because you've been working with us and I trust you, I'll give it a shot. But only two months. And within the first uh, phone call I had with him, now this is, about the strong beliefs that people are or they aren't who who we think they are. Um, He talked with me straight, even though I tried to interrupt, for 19 minutes, 26 seconds. Now, he didn't hear, he did not hear that I was trying to enter the conversation with him. And uh, it doesn't matter what he said, but he didn't hear. And I finally yelled at him, got his attention, and started to make him aware of the impact that he was having on people in a very radical way. Within three weeks, he uh, came to me and he said, I'm really embarrassed about something. And I said, what are you embarrassed about? He said, something that you did with me shifted my brain, and I can now see other people showing up with those horrible behaviors that I Mm. had before, but I never saw. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, so this is what I'm going after now is I think there's an awakening in, in parts of our brain that either will allow us to see the impact we have or just to see the intention we have. And sometimes that intention is not a we-centric intention. His intention was to show off, was to be the best, the smartest, the whatever you want to call it. But to other people, he was obnoxious, and he never saw that. Right. So this is what I've been studying is how do you activate? What's the part of the brain that gives you that 360-degree sight around not only who you are, from an intentional standpoint, but who you are from a, an impact standpoint and which part of the brain needs to be, is being activated when you are able to see the whole 360. It's, it changes people's lives and it, it goes against the grain of, you know, you are born with the DNA that you're born with. If you're tough, you're tough. If you're, you know, strong, you're strong. If you're loud, you're loud. Now, I wanted to challenge all of those fundamental beliefs about humanity. And, you know, lo and behold, we have epigenetics that tells mm-hmm. us that, you know, 50% of our DNA is is not template genes, which are the characteristics that don't change, but are the transcription genes. And they're encoded to be impacted by the environment. And if we create healthy young environments when kids are growing up or healthy workplaces, that we are actually going to shape the DNA for the future generations, helping people be more human with each other. Again, you could say I'm crazy, or you could just say that's a wonderful aspiration. And I chose the 
this is an aspiration, and I hope it's true. Wow. Judith, you know what's amazing? I spent uh, seven days with um, a phenomenal Vedic scholar, an Indian uh, a master teacher, and you're speaking the exact – I mean, if you looked at my notes from the lectures with this amazing man, Babaji, you, you would be thinking that you wrote them. I mean, almost word for word, and, and I've been telling this to my patients, you know, our DNA is our DNA, but why is it that some women that carry the BRCA gene don't get breast cancer? What is it about their epigenetics, those factors that are influencing the gene expression? And that's mm-hmm. where it really is. It comes down to gene expression. So if we can change our gene expression, um, we're able to do magnificent things health-wise and mentally and, and emotionally and, and in every other aspect. So you're, it's, it's funny because you're, you and I have, uh, we're, we're on, I think we came on the same spaceship and those things that make <laughs> you drive into the parking lot yep. at the right time and make you put your hand on the breast is why, you know, I get, I get some of the same um, experiences on a daily basis as well and, and you just learn to say thank you for whatever or however it happens. Boy, I can't wait to meet you. <laughs> I know. Susan has a way of Sue has a way of uh, of connecting. Um, I, I have met such unbelievable women through this process. Sue Rocco started this amazing um, opportunity to showcase these phenomenal women, and I, I swear, Sue, every week. The, our guests are like they're cooler and cooler and cooler. It's like <laughs> right. There's an energy. There's a connection. Oh, I, I it know is an energy, how to find we're attracting them. them in. That's right. I know you do. I do. Um, Judith, one of the you know I learned a lot about you watching the video you did with Gregory Furman. Uh-huh. And I was glued to it, and I was just, you know, um, listening and, and learning so much. And one of the things you spoke about, there's two things I wanted to ask you about. One of them is precognitive listening. Um, uh-huh. Talk about what that is and why it's important. Most of us are tuned in from the time we go to school to listen to words and to use words as the way we level set how we listen. And so we listen to words um, to confirm that we have the same meaning, and we listen to words to guide us in what the other person is thinking, but we don't know or we haven't known enough about what is really going on until recently about what's happening when we talk. And I have discovered and and I brought this word into my lexicon, which is that there is precognitive, uh, the word precognitive means that instead of listening for just the words, listen for the context, Listen for what else is shifting, um, and I'll give you an example that, that for me was recent and is so powerful. So if you're a precognitive listener, you're watching things shift in another person before even maybe they realize that it's happening. Um, their eyes can shift. The color of their skin can shift. The way they look can shift. There are a lot of signals that a body gives off when they're processing things that are deeper than the words themselves or when something hits them at a deeper level because some meaning is, is being birthed inside of them. So I uh, was talking at NASA for a whole day. I was invited to be there, and we had two workshops. After my keynote, I did two workshops. And in the middle workshop, I was talking to a woman, and she was describing her life and her children and just all different things. And I saw something shift on her whole being. It was a precognitive I couldn't tell you what it was. I didn't know what the words, anything it was connected to, but I just said, I stopped her and I said, what did you just think? And she started to share with me a thought about 
as I was talking about conversational intelligence, she started to think about her daughter. Her mind wandered to that, and she started to make some connection that she had never made before between herself and her daughter. And it was very, I won't share all of it, but it was a connection that flew into her brain like for a nanosecond and then almost went out. And when she said later in the third session in the day, she shared it with the whole group, she said, I saw in her an aha, an awakening, something happening, and because I asked her to speak to it, the precognitive um, noticing, that she was able to voice some of, she said, one of the most important connections she made between her daughter and herself. And she said, if I hadn't asked her, it would have gone in and out because when the prefrontal cortex hard connection opens up, it's very fragile. Things fly in and out of our brain very quickly if we have the right state of mind to allow ourselves to stop and capture it or to continue the thought, then it births some new insight and awakening in our brain. And she shared with the group in the afternoon what had happened to her. And she said, if nothing else that we take away from this whole experience of conversational intelligence is that the words alone are not the things, that we have to broaden our awareness of each other as human beings. And when we do, we actually capture, you know, these amazing insights. Mm. that can be transformational. And she said for her, this is going to change her relationship totally with her child, wow. what came in her brain. Wow. So Some people would say that's mind reading, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it is. Yeah. And it, let it You're feeling energy. You're feeling the energy. Yep, exactly. And, and just asking, even if you don't know what it is, so much of us, so many of us are just hardwired because of school and getting rewarded for knowing that we want to speak up when we know, when we have the answer. Mm. And we have to learn to ask questions for which we don't have answers. And that's that's what part of this is getting us comfortable with being, you know, a stupid, being not knowing, being like a child again, and just exploring the world of observations and insights and feelings that are actually really hardwired into a real conversation. A deep conversation. Yeah, I love that because it's really about speaking up when you have intuition, right? When you're yeah. sensing something, yeah. not just yeah. paying attention to the words. And I, I know that we all do that, but it's not, um, it just hasn't been, you know, historically something that is conversational and it should be. And, and this is what I learned in um, 1984. I was um, asked to write a, a dictionary for Random House, a business dictionary. And I had to study um, words that were not in the dictionary, find them. And then I wasn't inventing them. I was just finding them and bringing them into the mainstream dictionary. And it took a year and a half to do the project. And there were 3,500 words. But what it did for me is it made me realize that when a word doesn't exist, then the phenomena that goes with it doesn't exist because we don't know what to call it. We can feel something. We know something is different, but we don't have an actual term for it. And like precognitive, when you bring that into the dictionary, for people to use every day, it allows us to experience a bigger, broader part of our engagement with other people. Without that word, we, as you said, we kind of have it and it goes away in and out, and we just, it's just one of those things. So as we evolve as human beings, the more we bring in words and understanding that inventing words can open up and expand our capacity to experience more of each other, to uh, know each other in better, deeper ways, so, you know, I, I try to help leaders in, at work co-create, which is a word that I started to use 25 years ago, co-creating conversations that if they were to allow more spaces at work where people can co-create or innovate together in unusual ways, 
that people, when they co-create together, have, it's almost like giving birth to a baby. You feel different about that person. You no longer can see them as just an individual. You see them as part of your, your tribe in a deep, deep way. It's really wonderful. Well, Judith, that reminds me of the the um, when you were speaking about companies, corporations, and I, we go back to this. I know there's listeners who, who are... Uh, work for companies and they feel that their leaders have more of a power over rather than a power with. And I, I loved that expression because in other words, if you are working with your employees in more of a co-creative way, the, you will generate a more powerful outcome, I guess. Um, yeah. Right? So, or, or more success, a more successful outcome. What what I'm learning and what Conversational Intelligence, the book, talks about is that there's three levels of conversation. And it took me years of, of observing and writing down and studying patterns of interaction, trying to figure out what, um, you know, what, what was it that caused me to feel chemically different when I would run away from home? What caused me to feel like I did when I was home, which wasn't feeling uh, validated or appreciated? And um, so that those those interaction dynamics make a huge difference and when you're co-creating you're activating the prefrontal cortex heart connection you're activating the part of our you're activating the trust networks first of all you're activating the part of our brain that when it's activated more actually extends our lifespan in other words the more our chemistry is towards that positive experience of connecting with other human beings and co-creating with them um we now know look how many years ago, 50 years ago, less than 100 years ago, people lived to 39, and now people are living to well over 100. It's the largest growth in any, you know, age, and people that were born yesterday are going to live to 140. So, you know, it's all, it's all, it's the activating of that energy field, those, that empathy, that connectivity, that appreciation, the words that you've been using throughout this whole interview. You know, it makes a difference. Yeah. Judith, when you're working with CEOs and leaders um, and you have someone that is kind of, you know, typically an introvert, there are people, um, I know some, that are more comfortable by themselves. You know, and I guess that, uh-huh. you know, they, those are social, um, anxiety issues, whatever they might be termed. So how do you make, you know, how do you bring about a transformation when a leader is someone who's more of an introvert than an extrovert, who, who's not as comfortable, um, around people? So I've worked with many introverts and, um, one of which was the CEO of Clarol, a company I worked with for almost a decade and, um, and, when I worked with this guy and I had him on film because we did some amazing things to help his voice get out to the organization, you know, he would say, oh, I have to memorize before I do it. And, you know, I'm not good unless all sorts of things, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, once people become comfortable and knowing that, that they're appreciated for whatever their thoughts are and that they don't have to be extroverted, they can just be themselves. Um, it makes all, all the difference in the world, but truthfully what I love to do, there's a woman that I uh, coached over the last two years at uh, a very large ins- insurance company, one of the top 50 companies in the world. And this woman was being groomed for another higher-level position and being groomed to to uh, promote, but there was one thing stepping in the way, that when she would be in a room with a lot of men or even with a lot of people, she wouldn't speak up quickly. She was um, introverted by nature, 
but she just didn't know how to get into the social conversation. And so that was holding her back because at the top, first of all, there are all men in this company, and secondly, that she needs to be more bold. And so I taught her some exercises. And one of the exercises was that when human beings shake hands, when they see each other, when they look each other in the eye, they produce more oxytocin. Oxytocin is a bonding hormone, it's a love hormone, it's a cuddle hormone, there are all sorts of names for it. But what it does is it removes away the fear of interacting and connecting with people. And so if you shake hands, look them in the eye, say something to them, a simple thing like, hey, it's great to see you again, or we're coming to a meeting, have you thought about this? Just anything that you can do to create an engagement, it elevates your base oxytocin. And when that happens, and then you go into the room to have a conversation with lots of people, your ability to interact and move into the conversational space is amplified by 100%. Wow. And I taught this woman, I taught, it's amazing, and I taught mm. this woman to do it. Now, she was so smart. She had amazing ideas, but she couldn't get them into the conversation until people had processed them too much already or ideas too much, and hers would have sounded redundant. And mm. so by doing this exercise, she was able to enter conversations faster, make her contributions sooner. Pretty soon she became known as the ideal woman because all of a sudden people were hearing her ideas first, which now they couldn't believe how many things that she was contributing to the meeting. Mm. She got promoted twice in the next year, twice, wow. and became the top female executive in this large organization. You know, we, this is a, a topic I really wanted to talk to you about, and, and we didn't even get to it. Obviously, you know, this show is called Women to Watch, and we're all about trying to encourage women to pursue leadership. And I, I did want to know what types of differences you see in your work between men and women. Um, I wonder if you can just leave us with a thought there uh, in the few minutes we have. So um, that's a whole other show we can do. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's some fun things to know that um, the amount of crisscross between the left and right hemispheres in women's brains is much more extensive. So that means that the talking between the left and the right is much more. It also gives them the capacity to talk more and to um, talk or talk earlier and have the ability to process um, feelings and the neocortex language, um, the limbic system feelings to integrate across the feeling and verbal cognitive dimensions. So women have often um, quicker, greater depth in understanding how to bring feelings into life and how to manage the emotional life as well as the cognitive life, which is an extraordinary capability that, um, you know, everybody can benefit from having in their lives. So that's one of the, the differences. And, and, um, and wonderful quality for a leader, wouldn't you say? Uh, amazing quality, right. and the more and more women, the more women who don't um, leave businesses early, because sometimes there's a point where they say, "I can't handle the politics anymore, and I'm going to go and do something else." Mm-hmm. The more women who stay in, we're seeing on boards. The more impact women are having on boards. When women are out in sales, the more women women that stay high up in the sales function have greater impact on bringing in business. Their social conversational skills for women are very high, mm-hmm. and we have to find more and more ways to leverage that talent in the world. Yeah. Um, Judith, I wish we had more time, and we don't. We only have a minute left. So I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us today. I know how busy you are. And, Beth, thank you for calling in from the hospital. And Sorry for the – hey, it's all the technical stuff at first. If it was just up to Judith and I, we could have just d- talked energetically. We didn't need right. the microphone to work. So. <laughs> Tell us that. Right. For sure. Thanks, for sure. ladies. Have, have a great, great week. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Take care.